0: Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. And a good Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. I am your host, Dan Bespris, and we are back to the usual grind today. We have an eastern, way east, Atlantic, all the way east. I don't know. What's the right way to phrase that? When I think of the Eastern Conference, I think East. And so the Atlantic Division kind of... I mean, I guess you could say the Southeast as well. Anyway, we're into the Atlantic Division now. That's the the much shorter iteration of it. We are finally embarking upon our final five teams here in what I can only refer to as a wildly extended post-mortem season because, damn it, we got anything else going on. Uh, podcast listenership has pretty much stabilized here during this weird coronavirus downtime. I'm hoping that we get some positive news here in the not-too-distant future. and Maybe we can get things kick kicking on the pod. But in the meantime, we're just going to keep learning from a season gone by. We're going to be analyzing and getting ready for the future. And we're going to be digging into the daily news, which did have some stuff in it first thing this morning. It's May 26th, which means we are... Uh, closing in on June 1st, which was roughly the day that we were told last week that the NBA would probably be making a decision or somewhere in that first week of June neighborhood. We're officially under a week away from that. My 37th birthday, that's right, coming up right around the corner. And the news today was, I don't know, not unexpected, not surprising, but a little bit sobering in that it doesn't sound like it's going to change What's happening all that much, but it does change what we would see. And of course, the news that I'm referring to. By the way, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Basper, So you can check out Hoopball, our benevolent overlords at hoop-ball.com is the website. Hoopball Fantasy or Hoopball Tweets are the Twitter handles. By the way, new episode from our buddies over at the Hoopball Nets Division. Uh, the Nets guys putting out a podcast discussing the NBA's biggest rumors. Bradley Beal potentially to the Nets. That's in the rumor mill and what the Nets are willing to maybe give up to, to roll down that path. They've got their coaching search and all sorts of other good stuff going on. Uh, so definitely check out the new stuff over at Hoopball Nets. Steve with his Raptors snapshot. Ira with an OG Ananobi feature. There's still lots of good stuff going on over at HoopBall, so definitely check that out. But the news of the day, as it pertains to NBA's return to play, is that Damian Lillard, who might very well be the highest profile player on a team that currently would not make the playoffs, has come out and said, look, you know, if we're coming back and I don't have a means of actually making the playoffs, I'm not going to play. And he's 100% right. It's not rocket science. We've been talking about exactly this on the podcast, every time we discuss these sort of other ways that the league might come back, as if to say, look, what if the Warriors have to come back and play five games to get to that 70-game threshold and get their that little revenue kicker? What what is the incentive for Steph or Clay if he's actually healthy now, or anyone or Dre, anyone on these teams to actually take the court? I thought you might see these guys just play, you know, four minutes in the first quarter, maybe four in the second quarter, and aim for something like 16 minutes a ball game, which is, for all intents and purposes, zero, right? Like, if you're playing fantasy, you're probably not playing somebody who's only going 16 minutes. I mean, if they're Steph, you might. But in general, that's not worthwhile. You can tell the team would not be trying at that point. They haven't been for a long time. And so now... Not only are you getting this phenomenon with teams that are way down and buried at the bottom, because even if they came back and played 17 games, those teams aren't making the playoffs. At least with 17 games, there's sort of this, oh, you know, we can get into a groove. It's tough, I think, for a superstar, a healthy superstar to watch his team play 17 games, because then it's basically just like the stretch run of a normal season, right? Like you're you're playing down the stretch. They're probably going to play, I don't know two out of every three games at first and then maybe one out of every two and then they might t- play one a week or something like that as you get into the silly season. But if you lop that off and go straight to just a five-game tune-up and for the Blazers, it would actually be four games because they're already at 66. If you're going to a four-game tune-up for a team that's three and a half games out of a playoff spot, it ain't happening. If they lose one or Memphis wins one, It's over. It's over, man. And the Grizz have five games left. They're they're four up in the loss column. Same deal uh, for New Orleans, although they, I think, have six games left to play. Same with the Sacramento Kings, blah, 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 whatever. Semantics at this point. Spurs also, uh, geez, I think the Spurs have seven games left. They were one of the, I think they're one of the low-tide teams right now. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point here is you're getting what you've done is you've jumped straight to silly season. If there were anywhere from 15 to 17 games left, 14 to 17 games left for everyone in the NBA right now, I think Dallas actually only has 13 games left. So 13 to 17 is the range at the moment. Okay. When there are 13 to 17 games left, which is what we were dealing with. There's five weeks left in the regular season. Most teams are not going into silly season mode with five weeks left. You tend to see that happen the final two to three weeks. And for really, really bad teams, it extends all the way out towards the All-Star break. But for most of the semi-bad teams, the ones that maybe had a sniffing distance from the eighth playoff spot, those that were four, five, six games out with 17 to go, they're not going to give up because mathematically they weren't eliminated. If you basically just fast forward to the point where they get mathematically eliminated, they become part of the silly season. This is th- that's why this has always been kind of a uh, a hare-brained and cockamamie plan to get to that seventy game threshold. No one's going to give a crap. There's like, I mean, what did we what did we discuss? Either I think it was late last week. What did we discuss? It's like the the Heat, the Pacers, the Sixers. The Nets and the Magic, five teams in the Eastern Conference that might care about those five games, and in the Western Conference, you've got maybe the Clippers, Nuggets, Jazz, Thunder, Rockets, maybe the Mavericks, 11 out of 30 teams might, I'm not saying will care, I'm saying might care about those six, those, you know, three to seven games that might get played. Might 11 out of 30 teams, that's a bad ratio. That means 19 of your 30 teams are not going to be playing to win. They're going to be playing to play. They're going to be playing to get to that financial kicker, that threshold. So for Damian Lillard to come out and say, look, if we're playing four games in a weird playoff tune-up that we ain't making, I'm not going to play. He was coming back from a groin thing right before the league crumped out. Not that you could put any of this on uh, injury stuff, but I, I do think that it's fair to say that there's kind of no reason for these uh, franchise-altering players to risk themselves in the same way that they wouldn't be if there were four games left in the entire regular season and they were four games out of a playoff spot. He wouldn't be going full-bore like that. He might go full-bore for one of those four games until he's officially mathematically eliminated— But in that particular instance, he'd have already been loosened up from a season gone by. You're talking about a guy coming in out of this this made-up training camp, which I like. I like the idea of tuning everybody up and trying to get them up to speed. But it's going to be a shortened training camp. And then that first game of the year, uh, basically, is what this is. That first game of the last four games. You think most of these guys are going to be going 30, 35 minutes a game? No way! They're going to use it as kind of an extended training camp the same way baseball has extended spring guys that are a little bit dinged up they stay in Arizona before reporting to whatever team they might be playing for on any given season you know so uh it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense so what the hell is the NBA gonna do about that well we've seen all these other weird little ideas floating around and and I'm actually grateful that this is the point we're at where these other ideas are getting the play. And it's not like, will we or won't we? Now it's, what are we going to do when we do? That's seemingly where we're at at this point. But they've talked about having kind of a round robin play-in deal, which I think is also a terrible idea because you have to give some credit to the teams that won 45 games during the regular season. You can't just ace them out of the playoffs because they didn't win a weird post-fake training camp round robin play-in mode. You're hearing maybe they just go straight to the playoffs, which I actually think is probably still the way to go is make these other games exhibitions and then have the playoffs. But I know I would get shot down by both sides of the league because they want their revenue. And so what we probably end up seeing now is maybe you just see the 16 playoff teams report. Those teams play each other four or five times. And then they go into the playoffs. I don't actually know uh, contractually if that's enough to get everyone in the league to 70 games or if you actually need to have all 30 teams report. But to me, it seems just from a safety standpoint, it sure would be nice if they could just not just leave 14 teams out. We shall see. We shall see. I don't know what they're going to sit on, and I think maybe if I understood the contract side of things a little bit better, I might make a, a slightly more educated guess. At at this point, we just sort of have to wait and find out what, what they're going to choose. Like, if all 30 teams need to get to 70 games, then they're going to come back, and you're going to see, you know, taxi squad type of guys, G-leaguers, minor leaguers, whatever you want to call them, it's going to be the bench units for 14 of the 16 teams. Simple as that. Maybe a couple guys that are playing for a contract might come out and, and blow out a knee trying to do so. It, it feels like a really bad idea, but you might see that. I still think just from a safety standpoint, they should be going straight into the playoffs somehow. Extend training camp as long as you need to to get these teams ready to go, but this, there's no reason for a regular season at this point. It's, it doesn't sound like it's going to be all five weeks. If they do all five weeks, that would change things dramatically. I just I don't see it happening, and so... Beyond just getting to this arbitrary 70-game threshold, it's pretty stupid. It's pretty stupid to make these 14 teams that don't have a chance of getting to the playoffs come back and run themselves nuts for a week. It's a terrible idea. But money is big. Money is king. There is much of it to be had, and so that might end up being what we see. We will wait and play the just-tell-us-where-we-need-to-point-our-eyeballs game And we certainly will do so. But in any event, uh, that's what's going on in the NBA right now. And still, at least it sounds like we are rolling downhill towards seeing some basketball games. And so I'll stop complaining. And uh, again, we'll just we'll watch wherever the hell they point us. Point and click at this point. Tell me what to look at and I'll look at it want to remind all you guys that we are continuing to look for folks here at Hoopball. I know that uh, many of you are sitting on a little bit of extra time right now or trying to figure out what the next step is if a job went away and maybe isn't coming back or isn't coming back for a while. Perhaps this is the time to consider a new career. Maybe you want to switch over and you want to be in sports. Maybe, maybe you're working from home and your job is totally fine. But you figured out that you can work your own job at home from, oh, I don't know, 9 to noon and then again from 3 to 7 p.m. Maybe you take a little break in the middle of the day that Boss doesn't know about. Maybe you'd like to do something with us here at Ball. Maybe you'd like to make some calls in the middle of the day to sell some stuff and earn some money. Maybe you'd like to do some stuff on the podcast side. Maybe you'd like to learn or hone your writing skills from a fantasy standpoint. Maybe you'd like to cover a team in the NBA. Hit me up at Dan Basspers on Twitter. I'm going to try to put out a note today. Uh, over on Twitter to remind everybody we are continuing to look for good folks as we want to grow this thing here at Ball. and just because there's been a pandemic, we're not going to stop growing. Not for anybody. But let's talk about the Boston Celtics today. I, I, feel, I like to start with what I think is generally the easiest team to handicap in each division, was we sort of ease into it a little bit. And the Atlantic Division has some weird ones blended in. Brooklyn, because they're going to be so incredibly different next year with Kevin Durant back out there and probably Kyrie Irving attempting to stay healthy for most of the season. That is another large one. You've got the New York Knicks, who, I mean, that's all I have to say about that. But again, we will cover them here in the next couple of days. 76ers, they've been a relatively consistent and easy one. So they might might be up there with the Celtics as easiest teams to handicap within the division. The Toronto Raptors, who dealt with a ton of injuries this year, but ended up as one of the more fruitful fantasy baskets, and uh, and your Boston Celtics, who we just talked about a moment ago. So you got got uh, a fun division, by all accounts, but we're going to start in Boston, because they ended up being one of the best fantasy teams in the NBA this year. I, I think you could actually make a legitimate argument that they were the best fantasy team in the NBA. They had Jason Tatum, a top 15 fantasy player. They had three guys besides Tatum inside the top 60, two of whom were inside the top 45. You had a super overachieving Jalen Brown, who managed to squeeze inside the top 70, and then an out-of-nowhere 24-minute-per-game center who registered top 80 fantasy numbers in Daniel Tice. The thing that made this team so very simple to handicap was that five guys played 32 minutes or more, basically. Kemba Walker was at what, like 31 minutes and 50 something seconds. so we'll we'll round up for our mathematics purposes here. But they had their core four starters, Kemba Walker, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart coming off the bench. But anytime one of those main four guys was out, Marcus Smart got the start. There's your beloved rhyme for the day. Marcus Smart got the start. I know that I'm not a big guy in the DFS universe, but I I do follow a lot of DFS folks on social media, and they always talk about how Marcus Smart chalk is nearly a sure bet. Basically, any time one of those other guys was hurt, Smart dumped himself into the starting lineup and crushed it. Despite having one of the worst field goal percents in the NBA, he averaged 13 and a half points, two and a half three-pointers, four boards, five assists, 2.1 combined defensive stats, and actually had 84% of his free throws this year. Just a big season all the way around. But what I'd like to do with Boston today, and we're going to go through each of these players individually, but we're not going to spend a copious amount of time on any one of them. I think we'll probably dig in a decent amount on each, but there's kind of a an overall feel to this team where you're trying to figure out what it all means going forward, right? We can ass- we can assess what already happened, but how does that help us? So let's start at the top and we'll work our way down the charts. Jason Tatum, who had himself a whopper of a year, ended up at number 12 in nine category leagues and was better than that lately. He was actually ramping up as the season went on. In fact, the final two to three weeks before the shutdown, Tatum was inside the top five on 30 points per game over that stretch. Four threes, eight rebounds, three assists. I mean, he went absolutely buck wild. But let's assume, for argument's sake, that the 47-ish percent, 48 percent he was shooting during that stretch was perhaps unsustainable. Let's assume that the What was he taking? Some 22 shots a game and seven free throws a game during that stretch. Let's assume that that usage level was unsustainable because Kemba Walker didn't really play for the Celtics down the stretch. He was mostly dinged up. He'd been kind of in and out of the lineup a little bit. And so his second highest shot total on the team, remember Kemba took about 17 shots a game this year, was getting split up and Tatum decided he was going to take three of those 17 shots for himself. And that's a big deal, because he was taking 19 shots for the season. If you bump that up by almost 20%, that's a huge jump. On top of the fact that he ended up getting hot and shooting the ball at a higher percentage over that clip, the other stuff stayed largely the same. He just saw increased usage, increased opportunity. And that's kind of been the beauty of the Celtics all season long, aside from some injury stuff. Because Kemba missed a bunch of time this year, and we'll talk about him being a bit of a disappointment. And Gordon Hayward had uh, one really big injury that derailed what was a crazy hot start. Even Marcus Smart missed a dozen games, and Jalen Brown missed 10 to 15 games, and Daniel Tice missed his little bumps and bruises six or seven games over the course of the year. They were banged up. And that's been an issue for the Celtics under Brad Stevens pretty much since he came in there. He gets these guys playing so damn hard that they kind of play themselves into injuries. Say what you want. There, there's sort of an eye test thing going on. They play hard. You knew they were going to play extra hard this year because it's sort of the spirit of Marcus Smart is controlling the team now with no Kyrie Irving around. And they played themselves until they got hurt. Then they missed games because they weren't going to play through injury, not when you they knew they were going to be locked into, most likely, a top, Four seed in the Eastern Conference, and they ain't catching Milwaukee. The only hope, I think, for the Celtics was could they maybe get to the two seed if they played through more injuries during this year, and they, and wisely, they thought better of it. So Jason Tatum, 24 points per game, 24-7-3, 2.3 combined defensive stats, uh, percentages that were uh, not really helping all that much. Free throw was maybe a hair above what you'd need uh, to be a winning number, but good steals, good blocks. Uh, almost three three-pointers a game, and just finally, and, and did now take that big leap forward. He took the big step forward that folks were hoping for last year, but they needed to get Kyrie Irving out of the way, and he needed to ratchet up his aggressiveness. By all accounts, this is his team now. Everybody else that has a big role to play, because, I mean, you look at the shot distribution on this ball club, and it is really top-heavy. 19 for Tatum, 17 for Walker, 15 for Brown, 13 and half for Gordon Hayward, 12 for Marcus Smart. You've got your core five guys all taking 12 shots or more. Okay, but where does Jason Tatum go, right? That's the game we always play here. Is there a place he can get better? I think the answer is yes, and I think it's field goal percent and or free throw percent. Remember, this season... He got off to a painfully slow field goal shooting run on the year. He was shooting like 41% on extremely high volume. Over the final roughly 30 games, meaning basically the second half of his season, he shot closer to 48%. That makes him a top 10 guy if he does that for an entire season. If he's averaging, which he did, by the way, Over the final 25 games this year, he averaged basically 27, 7.5, and 3. 2.5 defensive stats, 48% from the field, but a slightly worse, 75% at the free throw line. I'm looking at Jason Tatum, and I'm assessing where I think he'll get drafted and what he does next year. And it's hard for me to see much of a step back. His minutes went up by about 10%. And so his blocks went up by as eh, actually blocks went up by about 20%. Volume went way the hell up and you can put a lot of that on the Kyrie Irving departure. His free throw percent this year was actually the worst of his young career. All the other stuff you can look at and you go, okay, this is this is fairly sustainable. He shot the three ball really well, but he's a good three-point shooter. He's 40%er for his young career now. You could actually see a universe next season where Jason Tatum does roughly the same stuff in points, steals, blocks, rebounds, assists, field goal uh field goal percent even if you want to leave it around 45 and free throw percent actually goes up from 80 and a half to 83. I really do believe in looking at this team that Jason Tatum is probably a first round guy next year. Unfortunately, he's probably going to get drafted right around the turn next year. I don't usually do this with guys that took a big step forward, right? We've talked long and often and probably far too frequently on this podcast about how generally when a guy makes a big leap forward and has this breakout season, he's going to get overdrafted the following year. But there really aren't too many places you can go to overdraft Jason Tatum. I mean, you could you could see him going at, like, 9 or 10. Uh, and, yeah, that, that might be a tough sell. But if he's going around where he finished this year, which my guess is that's probably where he gets drafted. He's number 12 and 9-cat. He probably gets drafted around number 12. He's actually a relatively safe pick there. I don't see his shot volume taking much of a step back. You know, I, unless the Celtics bring in somebody, but that seems somewhat unlikely, other than maybe a center. Uh, if they do bring in a center, I guess you could see his rebounding take a slight step backwards. But there's also so many places that he could take another, even if it's infinitesimally small, even if it's a micro step forward, if his field goal percent goes from 44.8 to 45.4, like half a percent basically, 0.6 of a percent, so 0.006. Or like we talked about, does his free throw percent come back up towards his 83 career mark? Maybe he scores just a tiny bit more if he shoots the ball a little bit better and hits his free throws just a tiny bit better. Maybe 23.5 points becomes 24 and change points. If he does that type of stuff over an entire season, he actually is a first-round guy. I'm very curious where he's going to get drafted. I think he probably ends up as one of those guys that goes right after the the big names. So you're going to see the, the super-duper names that come off the board right out of the shoot and no one's jumping up into that upper echelon with the you know, the Anthony Davises and the James Hardens, and you'll probably see Kat and Steph, and you might even see Giannis there, despite the free-throw shooting situation. I'm not going that way. And then you'll probably see the Dame-Jokic contingent in that next grouping, right? Those guys are, were bunched up in there this year. Uh, you might see LeBron in the next group. You might still see Joel Embiid in the next group. You might see someone like Trey Young get drafted a little bit earlier, even though I don't know, I don't know what the hell else that dude can do coming off of this season. You'll probably see guys like Bradley Beal, uh, Kyrie Irving, depending on how people trust him going forward. Jimmy Butler will kind of be in that next group that takes you right to the turn, and you probably see Jason Tatum in that group now. I don't know how many names I just said, but I think I got us pretty close to ten to twelve, right? By the way, I don't think I know Hassan Whiteside and John Collins were both inside the top ten this year. I don't think you see them drafted inside the top ten, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You might. I just I'd be a little bit surprised. And then I don't think I don't think anybody else has a case really to be drafted inside the top twelve. Looking at the names in nine cat at least. Maybe Paul George, if you think he bounces back in a big way, but I don't think he's going that early, not after this season. So you probably see Jason Tatum drafted near 10, 11, 12, or 13, and that's probably close to where he ends up. If he takes ever so slight step back and ends up at number 15 to 16, 17, that's not going to kill you if you took him at 11. It's not great, but it's not going to kill you. But he's locked into what seems to be a leadership role on a team that you know, he's kind of taken over the bunch. Spent more time on Tatum than I thought I would. What about Kemba Walker? He might actually be a value next year, depending on what you think he does uh, with his body, right? Like there's the, the the knock on Walker this year was that he he didn't play well, but you could have sort of survived the fact that he was more of a top 40 guy this year. And he was more of a top 30 guy before the injury stuff started taking him down a peg or two. You could see, you could you could draft a guy at you know at eighteen if he finishes at number thirty, you're going to be annoyed. But it's again, it's not a back breaking thing. The reason it became somewhat backbreaking for Kemba Walker is because he only played fifty games to this point and was basically in and out of the lineup when the season ended. Like he had already missed about fifteen games, and he was probably going to miss, I would think, at least another three to five. So you're looking at a guy that was probably going to miss, uh close to 20 games over the course of the season and underperform. 21 points, four boards, five assists, three and change, three pointers, a steal, half a block. Like a lot of good stuff going on with Walker this year. It wasn't like it was a brutally horrible season. There were just a few things that brings us all the way back to our very first lesson of the year. We got cute with Kemba and said, look, he's not going to take as many shots in Boston as he did in Charlotte. There's just no way. He actually has other people on his team that are capable, but we figured, all right, you know what? He shot 40, he's roughly a 42% career guy from the field. Maybe he plays with all these guys and he gets better looks. Nope. Nope. Or maybe you could argue he did, but he just took them all from three-point land. He took 8.8 three-pointers a game, and I know what you're saying, Dan, he took 8.9 last year, but... He also took 20 and a half shots with Charlotte last season. So it was nine out of 20 and a half as opposed to this year, which was basically nine out of 16 and a half. So he was taking a truckload of three-pointers. That's never good for a field goal percent. And the other stuff all just came down because usage was lower. Usage is value, you know, 19 times out of 20. Usage is value, and in this case, we got cute with it. And said, oh, well, you know, maybe he does a little bit less, but he's going to do it at a better clip and it'll even out. It didn't even out, it was down. This is what he is. Maybe you put him back into that 33 minute, 33, 34 minute zone if you think he stays healthier next year. Maybe you put him back towards 17, 17 and a half shots a game if he doesn't have all these nights where they're monitoring his minutes and keeping him in the 23, 26, 29 minute range. Like, maybe you push that up to 17 instead of 16 and a half, 17 and a half. But no matter how you slice it, you're looking more at Kemba from three years ago as opposed to Kemba from his final year in Charlotte where he took 20 and a half shots a game. Where it was really a one-man Kemba versus the, the, the world. Kemba versus the Space Mutants. Sorry, it's an old Nintendo game joke. Which is not a bad thing. You know, 22 points per game, one steal, three threes, 85% decent volume free throw shooting. That's not bad. Five assists, four rebounds. None of that is bad. It's just not what folks were hoping for coming off of a almost what was almost a first round level season for him the previous year, his last season in Charlotte with the Bob Hornets, <laughs> with the Horncats. So next year, when everybody's irritated with Kemba Walker and he's getting drafted in the late third round, early fourth round, I'm all for it. Take him at 36. Because this is about as bad as it's going to get, most likely. I don't think he's on the decline in any way. He's been in the NBA for about a decade. So, yeah, I mean, he's on, you could argue, kind of on the wrong side of, the, of peak prime, but he's only 30. He just turned 30. He still got plenty left in the tank. I think his name is so big that you probably won't get the kind of name the the kind of value on him that you might if he didn't have such a long track record of success. So I wouldn't say like this is going to be an uh, an easy value next year, but I think there's a chance of it. Gordon Hayward, nice season. 17 points, six boards, four assists. Not much defensively, one and a half, three-pointers. 50% from the field, 85% of the free-throw line. Big favorite of mine in Roto, Roto formats in particular. Because he does a lot of his damage with good percentages. He's a nice, positive impact guy in both of those categories. Gordon Hayward is actually... Not that far away from league average in almost every statistical... Remember we talked about what a league average guy was, and I was like, oh, here's Will Barton at, like, 65. He's pretty close to league average and everything. Will Barton at 67 was right around league... I mean, he's so close to league average and everything except for field goal percent. Gordon Hayward, pretty damn close to league average and everything, um, but generally on the positive side of league average by just the nose in most statistical categories. That's the thing. Look at Gordon Hayward's stats individually. 17 points per game. That's fine. It's not great. One and a half three-pointers. Meh. That's like just barely above league. 6.5 rebounds. Just barely above league average. Four assists. Just barely above league average. Right. Three-point something. 0.8 steals. A little bit below league average. Right. I'm going to get him around one. 1.1. 0.4 blocks. A little bit below. Point seven roughly, would probably be where you need to get to in your Roto League. 50% from the field on 13.5 shots. That's a really good number, although you'd like it on a higher volume. So, I mean, that's a positive, but not a ton. It's a medium positive. And then free throw. 85% is great, but only 2.5 a, a game. 1.8 turnovers. That's right around the league average. This is a guy we're talking about that's just a little bit above league average in 7 out of 9 categories and a little bit below league average in two out of nine, and so that makes him a top 45 guy. League average is good, because almost no one can do it in all nine categories. If you can be league average or better in all nine categories, you're, you're probably a second-round pick. You know who is also really close to league average in almost every category? Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I mean, this this is crazy, right? I I just to me that's a stat that I think surprises a lot of people. What do I get if I'm putting in a guy who's generally league average and everything? Here's a guy who was league average in almost every category and then, uh, well above it in points and well below it in turnovers. So basically, league average in seven out of nine and then one big positive and one negative. Pascal Siakam, when he was number thirty-six, it's crazy, right? If you can find guys that are okay in everything, you're talking about top fifty type players. I love Gordon Hayward. Um, I think he's going to be fairly accurately drafted next year. And so I don't know that there's going to be a big value there. But if he's floating around in the fourth round, I got no problem with you just taking him in the 40s. The later, the better, of course, as with everybody. But there's no reason he can't replicate this. He didn't have to take a ton of shots to get where he needed to go. And he ended up running a lot of the offense. Like, why couldn't he have 17, 6, and 4 again with good percentages? It's replicable. It's not. It's not great for head-to-head, because he's not powering you ahead in any one category, and that's kind of nice to get with some of your earlier draft picks. But in Roto, he's just plodding along in everything. Great guy to throw in there, if he can stay healthier. And his stuff seemed to be a little bit freak accidenty this season, but you know, it hasn't been a it hasn't been a road without bumps for him. Uh, Marcus Smart coming off the bench and then in fill in role, you know, you know what you're getting here. I, I think there's actually a chance he gets underdrafted again next year. He finished at number 57 this season. If this is indeed where everything's done, uh, big time steals numbers, he's going to hit a bunch of threes and that's, that's it. You know, he's, he's a little bit specialisty in steals and three pointers, and he was a bit better than league average in assists as well. Uh, Well below league average and field goal percent. You just have to sort of make sure you you counterbalance that. I I just you know he's a guy whose spirit embodies the team at this point, and they love him. Who knows what the future may hold for all of these guys? I don't know what changes might come to the Celtics next year, but I think Marcus Smart's a quick one. Uh, I think he probably falls past seventy five in most drafts, and I think at that point you can you can grab him up. He's a roto guy and he's a quiet. He's a quiet value because he doesn't do anything in a big, big way. Jalen Brown, I don't know. Uh, this one's a tough one for me to trust because it seemed like all of this stuff was destined to take a tiny step backwards over the course of the year, and then it just kind of never did. Um, it was a great season. There's no question. He upped his field goal attempts by five, raised his shooting percent by two and a half, uh, shot 38% from three-point land while increasing the number of those as well. Free throw percent went from 66 to 74, and so everything was just golden. More playing time, more usage, but where do you go from here? What's left? Right? I don't know that he can get above those 16 shots a game. I guess you could see his free throw percentage getting a little bit better again if he continues to work on that category, but to me, he feels like a guy who's going to get overdrafted because he scored 20 points a game. Uh, someone's going to take him right around that 65-70 mark where he finished this year. And to me, this was kind of a best-case scenario. With all the percentages going so far up, it feels difficult in my mind to see those going up again. Staying put feels kind of like the optimal. But we'll see. We'll see. I mean, maybe he was... Maybe he did so little else, and maybe the the field goal percent being one of the big impact parts to his game. Maybe that will keep his value depressed. I just I, I'm not seeing it. And then the Celtics ended up loving Daniel Tice. We heard we heard time and again about the Time Lord being the guy out there, and he just wasn't the guy. And I thought personally, I thought Ennis Cantor would see a bigger role, but he sort of was in and out of the lineup at times. There were stretches where he was functional, and we and. You know, the note with Cantor is, look, if he can get to 24 minutes, he's a fantasy value. Played 17 and a half minutes. Didn't get there. You're like, Dan, he's at 176. He's not close to being a fantasy value. Yeah, but the difference between 17 and a half minutes and 24 minutes is actually a pretty big deal. I mean, you're talking about a third, basically. A little bit more than that. An extra 33% on everything he does. So eight points becomes more like 11, roughly. Eight rebounds becomes more like 11, 11-11 and 11 with, you know, half a steal and .9 blocks on a good field goal percent. Now you're talking about high volume, or not high volume, but high field goal percent, eight shots a game. Yeah, that's a top 100 guy. But in 18 minutes, it's not. Simple as that. You just need to be out there longer. I don't know what the Celtics are planning on doing going forward, actually. This, this, this to me, is kind of an interesting spot because for... For ages now, we've heard that they, they want to fix their center position. For ages, for multiple seasons. Oh, they're they working on a center deal. Well, Daniel Tice has a team option next year at $5 million. I'm inclined to believe they will take it because he ended up being a really good value. He did sort of all the things that they wanted him to do. Put backs, running, good defense, really good defense, actually. His only issue was foul trouble. If you wipe that out... Daniel Tice would have had himself a monster of a year. And if you talk about Daniel Tice lately, remember he got off to a slowish start. That's not entirely true. I think he had a couple really good games and then he got himself hurt. And so so things kind of took a backseat and then Cantor played more and he was sort of in a timeshare with him. And we found out, look, the reason this is happening is because Tice was playing hurt and they just couldn't give him the minutes that they wanted to. Well, final 25 games this year, Tice was playing 27 minutes instead of 24, and he was number 54 in nine category leagues. He was stellar. He was quietly one of the best pickups in all of fantasy. He gets no love because he doesn't score. And let's be fair, Devontae Graham was the pickup of the year. I know we had a little contest uh, about that on Twitter. But this is the guy, to me, that deserved way more affection that he didn't get. Because not only was he good for the entire season, but he was getting better. His minutes were trending up. The Celtics had leaned into him as the guy. In fact, the last three weeks before the shutdown, he was playing 28 minutes a game, and he was number 45. There is no way in hell this dude is getting drafted inside the top 50. No way in hell. If the Celtics don't make any moves in their front court, I am hoping to end up with all kinds of Daniel Tyses next year. Because he only needs seven, eight shots to do his damage. There's a floor running big man for this team that can get steals and blocks and percentages and rebound. There's just a lot to like. For the full season, again, 24 minutes a game, he was number 78. I'd take him I'd take him inside the top 80. If they don't make any changes at center, he's grabbed that roll by the horns. There is the downside of oh well, what if the Time Lord makes this giant step forward and he end up having to share a bunch of time with him, or like what if Taco Fall becomes a thing? You know, this is more of an I'll believe it when I see it kind of deal. Daniel Tice made this giant leap forward, and they loved it. If Boston doesn't make many changes, if their front court remains largely unchanged and Daniel Tice continues to just be quietly good and largely under the radar, especially if they're in the playoffs and. Please don't make a giant name for yourself, Dan. Please. Please stay quietly effective for our Roto, our Roto teams. Please. Please. We beg of you. Just be quietly good. This He could be a massive value again next year. I, re- I truly believe that. I don't think that there's any kind of breakout thing happening here. He's just this beautiful complimentary piece to five guards and wings and no one big enough to rebound besides him. They need him out there. I mean, they need one bigger guy and they need one that's disciplined in some way. What's the lesson to be learned about the Celtics? Well, the Celtics fell right into the situation we expected, which was, you know, when we put out the the over wager for them this year. They're at 43 and 21 when the season was suspended and, you know, none of those bets are going to pay out, which is an enormous pain in the butt because we were on our on pace to win well over 50% of those things again. But uh, Boston over was one of my favorite wagers of the year. The number was forty-five or forty-eight and a half. So they had sixteen, excuse me, they had eighteen games to go, and they only needed to win six of them. That was almost a guarantee. They were going over. It was maybe my favorite over bet of the year, largely because I thought there was an addition by subtraction thing going on here. Their number was going to be lower because Kyrie and Al Horford left, uh, but they brought in. Kemba Walker, who was sort of a better team fit. And then I also figured this was going to be one of those prove-it years, like two seasons back with Boston when it was like the, okay, this is still, we're going to play crazy hard until we die. We're just going to play until we die. And that was their spirit again this season. Next year, there might not be quite that same fire, but these are situations to look for. Who's going to have that fire There's probably going to be fantasy value on teams like that. There's definitely going to be season win total betting attack points on teams like that, Uh, and then you roll right into it. The other thing is usage is value. Don't be an idiot, Dan, and don't try to convince other people when you're already being an idiot that someone like Kemba Walker is going to get enough to do when he goes from a team with no one else to a team with three or four other options. It's just not going to be the same. And also, a third lesson from the Celtics, guys coming back from serious, mind-bending, game-altering injuries tends to take them two years to get their form back. So welcome back to the world of the living, Gordon Hayward. And that's our show for today. Fun one. Boston was a real interesting team. Hoping I end up with some Daniel Tyses next season. Guessing I will. We'll see. I'll probably end up with the Kemba Walkers next year, too, because I'm figuring people are going to downgrade him significantly, but we shall see. Uh, again, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan Uh Reply to the note if you want to get involved with us over here at Hoopball. If not, just keep on listening. Back with you tomorrow. We'll keep on rolling through all this stuff, and hopefully we continue to get good news on the NBA front. Enjoy your Tuesday, everybody. So long.